going through the, uh, this, this Summer of Psalms, this series, and like I said, uh, we're just spending time in the Psalms, and the Psalms read differently than the rest of our Bibles do, in that they're not, they're not um, like this logical discourse of, 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 of history or narrative or letters, but they're just these like emotional poems that are crying out to God to say, and, and here's something that I reflected on this morning, is that the Psalms are not teaching us how to be better people. And in fact, none of the scriptures are really ever telling us, here's how you be a better person. The, soul, uh, the whole Bible is really a revelation of who God is. We are not primary characters in the story. We are the secondary characters in the story. The primary character is God. And so anytime that we approach the scriptures, our first question should not be, what am I supposed to do? But our first question should be, who is this God? What is he like? What is he all about? There's something that tells me something I should be doing. Why in the world should I be doing that? If you don't know the answer to that question, then maybe we need to ask a different question when we start to read our Bibles or hear from God's word. When our first question is, how do I modify my behavior to make a God more pleased with me, then we have missed the point. Because the point is not asking that question. The point is, who is this God? Why is he so good? Why is he worth following? Why is he, is he worth handing my whole life over and allowing him to transform and change everything about who I am? Why should I align my existence with his And asking that question first is the thing that shapes and changes us. We don't live our own lives free and independent and, and made as who we are. And then we take scripture and we say, all right, how do I fit and adjust this thing to fit into my life? So I can continue as is, but now I've got some good extra truths to use. No, 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 no. This changes and shapes us and molds us into its truth. We are the change. This doesn't change. We change. That makes sense? I was reading, um, reading A.W. Tozer this morning, and he was talking about um, this man-made division that we put into our own lives, this division between the sacred and the secular. And we do this because we, we want to almost partition off a holy part of, of, of the world, of, of spaces, of, of activities, to be God activities, sacred things. And then we look at everything else and we go, oh, these are just the world things. And so this stuff, I, I, there's nothing sacred about them. They're ordinary, boring, bland, just everyday parts of my life. But those are the special sacred Things And so I want to set those things apart and go towards, like I'll spend time in the sacred stuff, but then the rest of the world, I just, I have to be there. Tozer makes this point and he says, we make that distinction. There is no, there is no God-made distinction between what is sacred and in life, between what is sacred and what is secular. Your whole life should be sacred and set apart. He says the one person in all of history, whose life was entirely sacred, every element, waking, sleeping, eating, Jesus. And the reason why that sacredness was in, because Jesus was in a constant state 
of communication with his Father? Prayer. Jesus lived a life so saturated with prayer that every single element of his life was sacred. There was no divide between the two. There was no time spent in the sacred, time spent in the secular. Everything in Jesus' life has, was set apart for communion with his Father. That is what prayer does for us. Prayer is a way of removing the dividing lines between sacred and secular and making everything about him all the time. And so when we find ourselves making that, that split and divide in our lives, and that split, by the way, is really convenient for us because we understand that in the sacred world, we're supposed to kind of act and be and look a certain way. And in the secular world, we don't really have to worry about it quite so much. We can kind of do and say other things or act certain things or think other things. And we're really good at kind of setting those things aside and say, this part I want everybody to know about. This stuff we'll just kind of keep over here, not worry about it too much. We won't talk about it. And we'll just kind of leave that alone. But this part I want people to see. For us, especially in the church, it allows us to kind of create these like secret spaces in our hearts that kind of tuck the stuff away that we'd rather not everybody see. What we're going to go about through today is we're going to read about a man whose that, that dividing line was just completely erased in front of his eyes. It's not something that he did but it was something that was done for him. That was an act of grace. So my prayer today is that, that, that God begins to do the same work in you and in me. Father, we just ask that today your word would be clear and evident and cutting deeply into our hearts, that we would not run from it or hide from it or, or ignore it or justify it or deconstruct it. Father, that we would welcome it. We ask that you would just do an amazing work this morning through your words. Jesus, we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. So uh, two weeks ago, we, we introduced uh, Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is this, like, this gut-wrenching prayer where David... He's crying out in response to the fact that all of the dark places of his heart, this double life that he's been living between like the good and righteous king and this murderer, adulterer, thief, liar. And that, that he, he has been exposed that you have been living a double life, David, and that revelation is the catalyst that puts him onto a journey toward restoration. And so Psalm 51 is about our appeal to a merciful God. Knowing that we have done everything wrong and, and we deserve all punishment. And yet, someone, somehow we can find ourselves unconditionally loved and miraculously forgiven. And for me, the whole, the whole essence of Psalm 51 boils down to, to verse 1, 
If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up. We're going we're gonna to ultimately be starting with verse 10 uh, today. But, but if, you just, if you have your Bibles and you look at them, uh, verse 1 is, is kind of like the core idea. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. See, we live in the shadow of a God who is gracious, compassionate, and sacrificially loving. And it's important for us to know these are not like things that God is capable of, that he does if he wants to. Like, like nah, God can be gracious if he wants, or God could be loving sometimes. But like, those aren't, that's not like what we think about when we think about God. Right, like if you were to, to put a list of all of God's, uh, God's attributes up on a board and you were to number them, like what's your top 10 list? Uh, like those things probably wouldn't make your top 10. It would probably be things like invincibility and immortality and um, an ultimate power and the ability to create life from nothing. Like those are the things that we would probably put up in the top 10 of who God is. And, and why would we do that? We would put things like that on the list because those are things that we mortal human beings are not capable of doing. I'm not immortal. I can't create life from nothing. Those, those, can't be, those must not be human traits. Those must be God-like traits. And so, so I'm going to put those up at the top of the list. When I think about God, I'm thinking about this massive uh, cosmic being who can create life with his fingers and, and just beam it into existence, and he can never die, and, and he's the most ultimate power being, and we quiver. And, like, those are things that we would put at the top of that list. But, but things like uh, mercy, grace, kindness. When you're talking about God, are those things that you would put at the top of your list? Are those merely things that you're like, well, I guess God could do that if he wants to do that? The reality, though, is that these are not just, like, things that God can do. These are things that God himself says, they make up the core of who I am. They are the essence of me. That is the God under whose shadow that you live and you move and you have your being. And that fact is hugely important to us because there will be a moment in your life where, where you betray someone's trust. It will happen. Or, or, or you take advantage of someone's weaknesses. Or you destroy someone's confidence or worth or, or value while you're pursuing your own. And there will be times where, where you ignore injustice and justifying abandoning someone in their moment of need. You will do this because innate within us, David says, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Innate within you is a propensity to follow your own desires, to meet your own needs, to satisfy your own pleasures, to gratify your own pursuits. And when you are confronted by that, 
when it is discovered that you are the problem, or at least the creator of the problem, there will be a moment of of realization where, where you know you are not living up to your humanity and where relationship with others and ultimately God has been irreparably broken. And the thing is, you can't just go around cleaning up your issues and expecting everybody to welcome you back with open arms. I think sometimes we go about life saying, well, yeah, I messed it up, but as long as I clean it up, I'm fine, right? It's my mess, but I'll clean it. Don't worry about it. Sometimes I wish my kids would do that. Usually they're saying, I say, is this your mess? They go, "Uh uh-huh, and they run off and go play. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm cleaning it up. Um, But often we go through life in the same way. We say, it's my mess, don't worry, I'll clean it up, so I'm good, right? I'm fine as long as I can continue to fix everything. But it's been my experience that, especially when it comes to things like trust in relationships, that trust takes a lifetime to build up and mere seconds to destroy. You can't clean up messes like that. That's not something that you can just fix on your own. That's why it's so important that God is so, it's not just that he is gracious and merciful, but that he is primarily gracious and merciful. There is no 12-step process toward making things right with God and others because that would mean that somehow, in some manner, you are the agent of your own forgiveness, your own transformation, your own achievement, and that you are not, uh, but, but the thing is, you are not the solution. You are the problem. And it is when you finally understand this that you will find yourself helpless and brokenhearted. And that is when God comes in and does his best work. Patrick uh, Reardon says, It is only in the overwhelming presence of the Holy One himself that we sinners know how utterly sinful you are. So as we're going to read through and we're going to read this this psalm of David uh, crying out to the Lord, pleading for forgiveness and, and asking for it to be made new and different. You'll, you'll just find over and over again, as we're going to discover, David is never the agent of his own transformation. Yes, David confesses his sin, and he acknowledges that he is a fundamentally stained and messed up person. But until God reveals this to him, he is totally content to just live it up in ignorance and just pretend that everything is fine. I think some ways that the most merciful thing that God can do is to break us of that feeling of ignorance. to show us the secret innermost places of our heart that we are indeed unworthy of the respect and glory that we crave, we desire, we we expect. What we deserve is not honor, but death. That's confession. And it hurts, and it's probably the last thing that any of us want 
to do or have done to us. Because none of us want to be exposed for who we truly are. We put things in the secret place for a reason, right? We put it in the secret spaces because it's secret. None of us want to be exposed. But a merciful God shows us that this exposing of ourselves is in fact the very thing that will ultimately save us in the end. So confession, that's the first stage of this, this journey. So the second stage, though, is, is transfer, of this transformation is renewal. So first, we have been confronted by failure, our faults, and the stains that make us objectionable to relationship. And, and so when that happens, when you realize that there is no climbing out of the hole that you just dug out for yourself... That hopelessness is what leads us to cry out. And so David says that cry is not for a quick fix. He's not asking for a 12-step process. He is asking for this gracious opportunity to start completely over, to be made totally new. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to verse 10. Psalm 51, verse 10. We'll have it up here on the screen for you as well. David says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And look at David's plea here. He says, create a clean heart. Create. There's, there's very few, the only other times in Scripture where the word create is found is Genesis and every other passage that alludes to Genesis. It's only used in the term of creating something from nothing. So when David comes in and says, create a clean heart, renew a sturdy spirit, restore the joy of salvation, give me a willing heart. David is not coming in and saying, you know, my heart is pretty good. Like it does some good things. My spirit seems to be in fairly good shape and I'm content with all of that, but obviously made a few mistakes, obviously kind of murdered some people and committed adultery with somebody's uh, wife and kind of lied about it. But other than that, great heart. Good spirit, so can you just maybe do like jump in, smooth out some rough edges for me? Like David doesn't come into that because he ends up asking God for a new everything. Why does he do that? Why does David ask to be created totally new? There's an understanding here that if he wants to be good with God again, if he wants to be a man after God's own heart, Well, it's his heart and it's his spirit that are the things that's messing him up. It's his desires that mar the relationship. And there's only one way to get that relationship back. It's not by asking God to repair something that's mostly good, 80% good, 20% broken. He says, no, the whole thing is broken. The whole thing. It was those desires, my heart, that brought me to where I am. There's no way that my heart is the thing that's going to bring me back. I only have one option. 
I need a new heart. I need new desires. I need a new spirit that moves me and guides me and directs me. My spirit is not the right one. My heart leads me over here, and it should be leading me over here. I need a new heart. I need a new spirit. A sin-stained heart will do a couple of things for you. That stain will, will color your desires, it will tint your intentions, and it will shade your purposes toward pleasuring yourself, toward protecting yourself, toward promoting yourself. That's exactly what David did. And the thing is, though, that coloring, that tinting and shading, that's the thing that leads to every mess, every problem, and every disaster that the world has ever seen. The sin stain of your heart will do that for you, but it will do one other thing for you. It will steal your joy. And you can just, you can just hear David's pleading here. He's like, do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. thing is, is that when, when you become, and I don't think it always starts this way, but I think it, it evolves to this way. But when you become the answer to your own problems, all your hopes, all your expectations, when you become the answer, that gives you like permission to pat yourself on the back when you do a good job, to give yourself the attaboy or the way to go. Uh, you, get, you get all of the, the personal achievement awards. That's great because, yeah, you have, you have done whatever you have done to make things good or right in the world. That's, that's on you. But you're also responsible for everything else that happens to you. You have no one to blame but yourself when things go haywire. You will be your own worst critic you will sell yourself short and you will let yourself down every time. And for the believer, salvation, this thing that, uh, that we, we say is sort of central to the whole, the whole construct of Christianity, the whole, the whole belief that we are, are in here not by our own works, but by grace through faith. We have been saved through Jesus Christ. Christ, that salvation is supposed to be the centrality and the thing from which everything springs forth from. And instead, salvation ceases to be a relief and it becomes a burden. And instead, we can become anxious, fearful, and joyless creatures, unaware that God is with us, uncertain that his spirit moves inside of us, and un familiar with the reality that eternity with God, an eternal, unending, abounding relationship with the Creator is to be found not later as some material reward that we earn for being good, but now as a relational reward for receiving grace. The key 
to living a life uh, that is sold out for God, that, that is living a life full of meaning and value, the key to everything is that you don't make it happen. And in fact, when it comes right down to it, you have very little to do with living a life that you have made right before God because you don't make it right. God makes it right. And, and yes, it starts with confession. It starts with this acknowledgement that if God is the standard of what is good and right and meaningful and valuable in the world, yes, you fall short of that. And, and your life will, will be fairly pitiful in comparison to what God offers you. But, but here's the deal. The steps are not, one, confess that you fall short, and then two, tell God how you plan to fix it and make it better. Those aren't the steps. I've met so many people, Christians in particular, who are struggling with an area of sin or addiction or distraction, something that is just messing up their lives and their relationships. And they've lost any sense of right relationship with God. And, and they sit with me and they share the burden of this thing that is, that is in their heart. And they know that God doesn't want that to be a part of their story. And then they tell me how they need to do better, act better, think better, have better habits, be better people, whatever the case may be. They want the story to be different. And here is how they are going to make it different. And the problem with each of these plans, these ideas for how to change things, is that none of them actually, when it comes right down to it, none of them actually require the power of God to change anything. None of them actually require the Spirit moving through. None of them require the gift of a new heart. None of them require the power of God. It's all the willpower of me. They don't require the grace provided by Jesus. They don't require any transformation, any renewal of the Spirit, the presence of God to be involved in any way. I can do it. I can be better. I can fix it. No, you can't. And that needs to be the best news that you have ever heard. You cannot you cannot fix it. You cannot be better. And once you realize that you can't, then God comes and he says, yes, now here's a way. That's the beauty of grace. God is not a therapist. I don't, have you thought about that? We, we like to think of God sometimes as a therapist, like, like as if he exists in the realm of prayer for us. Just, he, he just sits up there on his couch, and then we sit on our, our spiritual couches, and he makes us feel better as we, we ask him, like, our problems, and he listens really well to us, and he comforts us, and he just sits there and listens, and then we kind of get through our prayers. We feel a lot better about where we're going, and we move on. We say, thanks, God, and we're like, God never answered you. You answered yourself. Thanks for praying, and then you move on, right? How often do we use God as, like, a, a personal therapist um, that, that we use? And I... I for to all the therapists out there, because I know we have them, I am 100% not knocking you for what you do. 
You are intentionally valuable to the world. I'm saying that that is a great area for you to serve in. God does not serve that as his primary agency. God is an amazing therapist, by the way. There's a reason why the Bible calls him a wonderful counselor, right? But I would say that, that more than that, God is not just interested in therapy. He is a change agent. God's role is not to just help you feel better about your life as it is. His goal is to give you a new heart, a heart that desires everything that he is. His goal is to give you a new spirit, a spirit that is lined up with his and that is steadfast and strong and willing. It is God who brings you to confession. It is God who renews your spirit and that is the act of a gracious God. You with me? You with me? All right. I don't know if you're with me, but we're going to keep going. All right. Um, man, I'm going to hear it from so many therapists this week. Just send me an email. I, I promise we'll make it right. Um, I love you guys. All right. Uh, so once God is going to do this renewal in your life, and by the way, we have to point this out. It is abundantly clear. You cannot have repentance before you have renewal. That, that step in there is, is huge. You cannot do the work of changing your life without God doing the work of changing your life first. You, at best, are a bit player in your own story. Once God does this renewal, after you have been changed, the true work of repentance can begin. So here's David again in verse 13. He says, Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. I just noticed this, and I'm going to nerd out on it just for two seconds. But you know how, like, if, you've, if you followed along, David has no problem using the, the, the given name of God, which is Yahweh. He has no problem using that, that name for his God over and over, and over again. He, he speaks it, he loves it, he knows what it means, and it fills him with joy to sing it. Do you know how many times he uses God's name in Psalm 51? Zero times. Zero times. I think the reason why is that he has, he has recognized that in so many ways he has taken Yahweh's name in vain for so long that in finally being broken, he can't even bring up the, the, the strength to even say it. This is a man who has been totally and completely broken, who has so much humility in his life that he can only speak of God, his master. Man, that's contrition. All right, sorry. Back, back to, back to the, the work here. See, there's this phenomenon that occurs when God's severe mercy 
confronts us and breaks us and strips us down to this, this utter dependency. The grace of God is what leads a man like David to share, to open up about the testimony of what God has done in his brokenness, even when it's a bit shameful. It's one thing for David, the songwriter, the poet, the king, uh, to write of God's goodness or his love, to speak of Yahweh uh, in grand terms, or, or to speak even of his mercy. But it's wholly another thing to hear the testimony of David, the adulterer, the murderer, the liar, the thief. A man who by every metric of morality should have been thrown from the presence of God, who should have lost the life-giving spirit of God, and yet he has encountered a God who is full of compassion, a God whose, whose ultimate aim is not ritual purity, but restored relationship. Even with a man as faulty as this, that testimony the testimony of the broken has a power that is not rooted in your intellectual understanding of the divine nor of your emotional bents toward a spiritual presence. In fact, it's not rooted in you at all. It has a power that is rooted completely in this gracious and loving and forgiving God. It's a testimony that says, you know what? By every logical criterion, I deserve all the punishment. By every visceral sense, I feel and I own this guilt and shame. And yet, God reaches out and grabs my sin-stained hands. He absorbs my guilt and shame, and he makes me clean. Boy, do I serve a great God. That is a testimony. David goes on to say that God does not desire ritual sacrifice or burnt offerings because he's like, I would give you those things if that's what you wanted. He wants a broken spirit. God does not care about, um, this is going to sound a little bit scandalous, might be the word. I don't think God cares about your spiritual activities. How consistent you've been at church attendance, how you do communion or baptism the, the right way or the wrong way. And I know that coming from a pastor, that can sound really sacrilegious or irreverent, especially for a man whose profession is to track attendance and administer sacraments and promote spiritual activities. And yet, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the testimony, the expressed witness of a person, if their heart has not been changed, is no testimony at all. You can do all of these spiritual activities, you can do all of these sacred things, but if there 
is a, a, a messed up, sin-stained heart that refuses to set aside that life for his God, that is not a testimony of what God has done for you. That is a testimony of what you have done for you. I think for far too long the church has been mired in arguments and division over how we ought to do church. And along the way, we've lost sight over how we ought to be the church. And to be the church is to be a broken-hearted and humbled people who welcome other broken-hearted people into the fold and say, yeah, we get it. We have been there. We understand. And guess what? Jesus died and he rose again so that you could be made new with him. Would you join us? Man, we're just a bunch of people who have been broken and made new. And how beautiful is that gospel story? Not the one with all of the right methods and practices. It's not the one with all the proper worship music. There's no perfect prescribed methods for doing uh, all the sacraments. There's no optimal experiences for how how a a church service ought to look with, with different activities and attitudes. But man... And I'm not saying we shouldn't think carefully and clearly about how we, we should do that, how we can be most effective in those ways, how we can, how we can be uh, sensitive to people or honoring to people, uh, how, we can, how we can love them through all of those things. What I am saying is that we can, we can elevate minor things and we can, we can expand them to hide stains and sickness behind them. And let me tell you what, to the rest of the world, when, if, you have a, if you have a boutonniere on your shirt and there's a stain behind it, making the boutonniere 18 times larger doesn't make it, doesn't hide it. It only makes it really clear that there's something you're trying to hide. Because obviously that boutonniere would not be the size of your shirt. Right? They'd say, nope, something's wrong with that. That boutonniere ought to be, that's a minor part of your dress. That should be right here. What are you hiding? We can take minor issues over how to organize a church service or how, or how, to, how to go through common practices of life or how to, how to dress or how to, how to walk or how to act. And we can take minor issues and we can elevate them to the status of major spiritual activities And often that comes because we find ourselves horribly deficient in the areas that matter. And so we want to control the things we can. The gospel story is not about how we are able to control the things we we can't. The gospel story is about how we recognize we can't control those things, but God does those things through us and for us. And our activities are not an act... our attempts to raise ourselves up to good relationship, they are a response to God already having done that work for us. We in the church have wasted far too many words and relationships 
worrying about the arrangement of our burnt offerings when the condition of our hearts were left unattended. When I was working at Western Seminary before coming here, I, I had the, uh, the role of director of student services, uh, which meant a number of different things, but my favorite part of that role was that I got to pastor other pastors. Uh, I got to sit with and talk to and counsel and pray with pastors from churches all over the Sacramento region and throughout the Bay Area. And, and I got to know on this like uniquely intimate way those who are in it for the right reasons and those who were not. One student that I met, he had just been hired as the youth pastor of a 10,000-member uh, church, and he... He told me, he testified about how he had risen through the ranks of small churches and bigger and bigger and gained more influence and notoriety. And then finally he married someone really influential. And then he reached the peak, the biggest church around. He was the youth pastor. And he was, quote, living the dream. This student did not last very long. And then... Then there was my friend Paul. I remember sitting in my office and and calling Paul, and uh, he was a pastor down in in, uh, the middle of California, I think in the Stockton area. And I remember calling Paul and saying, Paul, how how are you doing, man? How can I be praying for you? And he's like, man, my life is amazing right now. I just found, true story, I just found out that my wife, has been cheating on me for two years. And I'm like, Paul, that does not sound very amazing. That sounds pretty awful. He's like, but, but, it's amazing because we, we discovered through that, that thing that happened where she just, where that she was, she was diagnosed as bipolar and her bipolar disorder was the reason why she cheated and now she's getting treatment and things are going really well and, and our church has been super gracious toward her and understanding in all of this and he's like, man, I'm just grateful and humbled by that and man, our marriage is, is going to be good and I'm so thankful to Jesus for helping show that. And between the two stories, which one has the greater power? Yeah. Which speaks to the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ? It was my experience while working there that the the best students and the best pastors as a result were the ones who came out totally humbled by the magnitude of their God and honored by the small part that they got to play in bringing his kingdom to fruition. See, when when we are praying about who to who, who to, to serve with and, and to get people involved. We're not looking for those who, who assume that they have nothing left to learn. We are looking for those who have learned and now realize they have everything left to learn. We are looking for people who in all honesty and humility can say, by God's grace, I am not who I once was. And by God's grace, I am not who I will be. In the end, the, the grace of God is the, th- is the thing that leads to confession. 
And the grace of God leads to renewal. And the grace of God leads to repentance. And in the end, the grace of God leads to trust. And that trust is the culmination of of this journey toward relational restoration. Verse 18. And your good pleasure cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's so much humility that comes in David's words. And and when I say humility, I think sometimes that's going to require some reconfiguring of our understanding of humility. See, often our idea of being humbled means that you have to think less of yourself, to to lower yourself to, to be less than what God made of you or thinks of you, to see yourself as like a scumbag or, or just a terrible person and to mourn and, and woe over how you have failed and, and how you have screwed up. But, but this is not so much humility as it is humiliation. And, and the difference in all of this is that you are the victim. Even if you are also the perpetrator, even if you are also the problem, you're also the victim here. Now also notice who's the subject here. I, I. I am such a terrible person. I am so bad. I Look at me, how bad I am. How humble I'm being. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. The sin that we are confronted with should, ought to, cause us to grieve and mourn what we have done, to recognize, yes, we are the problem, and yes, we do not deserve mercy and grace. But since God takes us and makes us clean, and he renews us, and he turns us toward repentance, as we move forward, the further and further, look at, look at how, pay attention to here, look how few times uh, he says uh, God's name, or he says God twice in the first nine verses, and he says it like nine times in the second part, and his name becomes less and less and less of the factor. Even in even David's prayer, the, the subject that he is talking to leaves himself, and it shifts and migrates toward his God, because Humility is not about giving you more or less credit than you deserve, but giving all the due credit to those who deserve it. So look back at what David says. He says, If it pleases you, God, bless your people, cause them to prosper, keep them safe and secure. Well, think about everything that's been going on in David's life right now. David has just been totally broken by God. David has, has recognized that his acts and everything disqualify him at, from being king over this, this nation of Israel, much less even having a relationship with this God. And yet he recognizes here, like, what is his, his asking? He's asking that, God, if it pleases you, would you bless your kingdom? Would you cause your kingdom to prosper? Would you make your nation secure? He's not even thinking about himself at this moment. But here's the other thing. Wait, what's David's job? David's the king over Israel. 
It's literally his job to make the nation of Israel prosper and secure and safe. Like, it's his job to do those things. But look what David says next. He says, when you are pleased to watch over your people and bless them, when I relinquish the role and do responsibility as king over you, then you will delight in sacrifices and burnt offerings and bulls offered on your altar. Can you see this, church? Every individual effort that David makes to be a good king cannot please God. All of David's efforts do not add up to a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Because God is not looking for you to be your own personal savior. You need not prove your worth to God or to anyone else, not even to yourself. Every attempt to improve your own standing in God's eyes, whether it would be by elevating your self-worth or by denigrating it, is like these ritual sacrifices and burnt offerings that God doesn't care about. It's not about the ritual. It's about the relationship. It's not about uh, what you do. It is what God has done every time. It's about handing over your family, handing over your job, handing over your church, handing over your friends, handing over your spiritual habits, handing over your school and your house and your wallet, and just trusting in God because he is trustworthy. One of the greatest potential hindrances to a restored relationship with God is our own success. The more we own, the less we need. The more we do, the less we do not. The more we learn, the less we lack. The more we protect, the less we suffer. I'm not saying that you'll never need God or that God somehow becomes expendable even though some may think that way or choose to think that way. I'm just saying that when the other shoe drops and inevitably history shows it will, the moment after you have gone and gone and said, I don't need you, I don't need you, I don't need you, when you finally realize I do need you, that lostness becomes pretty evident. And I think, in a way, that's why trust is not the first part of the journey. It's the last. I think that's why trust is not the first part of the journey. It's the last. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis here. And Lewis is writing on grief and suffering. And, and he writes this. He says, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept that. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for, of course. It is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in imagination. Then later he writes this. He says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth of falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. 
It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? If trust is the first step for us, then we can just take the intellectual properties of God. We can just take the idea of God. We can take the fantastical nature of God and say, yeah, I think that's going to work for me. Sure, let's put it into practice. Let's put him in the box and say, yes, God, I trust you. And that trust will be fully tested over and over and over again and degrade and degrade and degrade until it is lost. I've seen an astronomical number of celebrity Christians who were from a young age sold out believers and who have now have walked completely away from the faith. And it is not an instantaneous destruction of their faith. It is a gradual deconstruction over time. And I think in so many ways that's because trust was put first when it's last. You cannot trust if you have not yet repented. And you cannot repent unless you have first been renewed. And you cannot be renewed unless you have first confessed. And you cannot confess unless you have first been confronted by a holy and pure, yes, but also gracious and loving and kind and forgiving God whose aim is not to destroy you, not to abandon you, but to restore you to recover his sons and daughters and to reclaim you as his friends. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite the team up. Father, we just... come before you today. Father, that you would even welcome us into your presence. Creatures that we are. Who by our own merit are, are undeserving. Sometimes, Father, that confuses me because I want to say, God, there's got to be a way for me to contribute in some way, shape, or form. There's got to be some matter where I can, can, can offer you something on my own. But there never is. The sacrifices that you ask are sacrifices that you have provided. Broken and contrite hearts. who are made whole only by the sacrifice of your son. The greatest sacrifice that you have taken the most pleasure in, that you have delighted in the most. May our trust in you today come from a willingness to be exposed. Father, my prayer is that you would show us the areas that we have been holding back in the secret places. You would allow those to be exposed, to be shown, to be revealed for who we are. And my prayer, Father, is that we would not seek to minimize them, justify them, pass them over, but that our plea would be like David's, that we need a new heart.
God, we ask for your help this morning. We just thank you and praise you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.